As we continue our way through the book of Mark this morning, uh, we find ourselves in Mark 15, and we'll look at verses 16 through 32. Uh, if you'll follow as I read Mark 15, starting at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, and they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, they led him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments amongst them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. As we look at the continued description by Mark of the, the last week and now the last hours of Jesus' life, you notice, and you'll notice in all of the Gospels, uh, the crucifixion is, is mentioned. Often when we think of the crucifixion, and many times, and, and somewhat I think it's helpful for us historically, uh, we go into detail about the facts of crucifixion and the heinousness of the Romans' creation of crucifixion and what it would be and, and what it would look like and what people would go through. And in one sense, the authors of the Gospels did not have to describe it because the Jews and the Romans and the Gentiles of the world would be very familiar. It was common practice in Rome. In another sense, uh, we, we can see that uh, they excluded a lot of those details because the fact of crucifixion, the physical destruction of Christ's body and crucifixion uh, was not the most significant part. Christ is not the only man in history who has been crucified. Many have been. He's the only innocent man crucified. He's the only man whose crucifixion and death declares the righteousness of his people, the righteousness of God, whose resurrection both justifies and declares the power of God. 
the form of his death is important and that Old Testament scriptures would declare anyone hung upon a tree is cursed. But the form is not what is given us about redemption. There is far more to the crucifixion than the tree and the nails. We saw this as Jesus in the garden uh, was not anxious over the form of his death, but the cost. As Jesus prayed, he prayed because it was the wrath of God that he had never experienced. And we see that today as you look, as we see the mocking of the Romans and the mocking of the Jews and the clear, deliberate facts of what happened played out by Mark. Christ is not is not troubled in all of these things going on. We'll see next week as we look, his statements are not about the crucifixion, but they're about the reality of what he is bearing. The sin of man being, uh, in one sense, forsaken by the Father for our sin. And in this passage today, we will look at the mockery of both the Romans and the Jews uh, toward Christ and, and the facts of the crucifixion. We will look at both as Mark displays things, you know, there's like tension for me in how much do we turn to other Gospels to look at this? Because as we look at the center section, what you'll see is Mark just kind of in Mark fashion, he's giving a quick summary. He just kind of lays out facts real quickly and moves on. Whereas you read the Gospel of John, you read Matthew and Luke, uh, there's some more detail to these things, particularly in John, there's a lot of detail there. And so if you would like to look at those passages, I would encourage you, write down, look at John 18, John 19, that's where you would see more detail of these events, which we'll discuss today. Uh, and as we, we look at the text, I, I want to remind you again, as we're coming to the close of Mark, as we look at a narrative text, it's slightly different as we approach it than the way we approach an epistle. Let me clarify what I mean for you. When we talk about a narrative text, that's the Gospels, the, the histories of the Old Testament. We're talking about narration, that God is describing the facts of what happened. And narratives are primarily descriptive. They're not prescriptive. Often as Christians, we get ourselves into trouble when we start applying descriptive texts in all kinds of ways to ourselves. You know, I think, well, for the sake of time and confusion, I won't point out all the ways we do that, but it is a common practice of Christians. The point of this text is description. If you look at the context, Mark 14, 53, Mark 15, 15, it's Jesus being brought to trial by both Israel, three trials, then Rome, three trials, and he's going before them, and what Christ declared would happen is exactly happening. In Mark 10, 33 through 34, Jesus told his disciples, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Mark 15 goes into the description of those very things happening. What was prophesied by Christ, proclaimed, and what was promised and planned by the work of God. What we see here is a description, the fulfillment of what Christ has declared 
and what the Father and Christ and the Spirit, the Trinity, has planned and purposed to be accomplished. It's the description of those things. What this is not is a prescription of how we deal with mockery. How do we deal with reviling? Now, the Bible has much to say about that, and it points us to Christ. That when we are reviled, when we are mocked, we should look to Christ, right? We just less than a year ago, we went through 2 Peter, and we were encouraged that when we're reviled, we remember Christ did not revile in return. But he submitted himself to save, to the Father's will, to the purpose. And so it is not a declaration to us of how do we deal with foolishness and joking. Praise God, we have both the description of the Gospels and we have the epistles, which are the prescription for the church. How should we function? And so many times you'll notice as we've worked our way through the book of Mark, I will give the description of what's going on in Mark. And then when we get to application, how do we apply this? I will try to turn to epistles to give the prescription of where, where our minds go because of this text, how we read this text, the truth of this text, how does it affect us and how we should live? That is the application of the text. And so that has been my pattern as we've worked through Mark, and I know I communicated in the beginning, I want to communicate it again today, in looking at both the descriptive reality of what happened, God's promises being fulfilled, as Christ declared, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then a declaration of how that has come in through the incarnation. And a declaration of Christ's life and perfection and the reality of that through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the intention of Mark. But also our application then, how does that change our lives? And so this is my concern. This is always the temptation when we go to a text like this. I, I see a text like this and I think rightly we see in ourselves as we look at the Romans mockery of Jesus, we will see in ourselves foolishness and mockery and things that need to be repented of. Or we will see in the world foolishness and mockery and things that must be judged. And we will put our place as the center of the story as either we are crushed and should be like the Romans are, or we're the judge and righteous over the Romans. And neither would be appropriate. We can see the sin of the Romans and recognize our own sin, yes, as we should, and recognize Christ as the payment for sin. We could see the sin of the Romans and recognize the foolishness and the ignorance of others and, and corruption of government and all of those things. And we are right and should, but we are not the judge over life and death. Christ is. And so while we seek to apply this, we will recognize ourselves uh, in the text, not in that we are Roman soldiers or Jewish leaders, but we are men and women given to sin. And what's declared in this text is that the sinfulness of man, the faithless sin of man, is no obstacle for the sovereign plan of Christ. The faithless sin of man is no obstacle for the sovereign plan of Christ. We will see the Romans think they know better than Christ. We will see the Jews declare they know better than Christ. 
and we will see the plain, simple facts of what was accomplished in truth by Christ. So let's look to the text at the perfect plan of God. First, verses 16 through 20. Verses 16 through 20. The ignorant mocking of the Romans. The ignorant mocking of the Romans. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his clothes on him, and they led him out to be crucified. We see in verse 16, uh, they bring him into the palace and then clarification by Mark of of what does he mean by that into the Roman governor's headquarters. So he brings them in and then he is scourged there. What, What does it mean that this is in the palace or the Roman governor's headquarters? This is under the supervision of Pilate. Remember, in the last section, we looked at Pilate's trial of Jesus and both his internal conflict of that he knows Christ is an innocent man and his deliberate choice that he would rather spare his own life and his fear of men and kill an innocent man than to do what was right. And we see here the same. This is not soldiers mocking Jesus and scourging Jesus outside of the vision of Pilate. This is part of Pilate's evil plan to try to do what he think is a good. He's letting a lesser evil happen. And in Pilate's mind, this might solve a greater evil. So he brings Jesus in for him to be mocked and scourged by the soldiers. And then he later, as you can look and see in the book of John, he presents Jesus mocked and scourged, hoping the crowd would have sympathy on Christ. So he determines it's better to beat the innocent man bloody that the envy of the Jews might be satisfied and they would have sympathy on Christ. And we talked about this in previous weeks, Pilate's kind of political maneuvering trying to do this in that he both thinks, well, maybe I could get the Jews to free him by presenting Barabbas, the illustration of illusion of choice. Of course, they'll choose Jesus, not Barabbas. And then he politically maneuvers and wanting to preserve his own life and not knowing what's going on, but being responsible and in authority, living out of how he knows how to live, politics, beats and scourges an innocent man so that he might put him before the crowd to gain sympathy. Neither are successful. Pilate's evil plans to bring about what he thinks is a better solution are unsuccessful. And his evil plans, as predicted by Christ, are exactly accomplished. This is done as a spectacle. This is not a small private scourging. Uh, This is a broad spectacle, what's being done to Jesus. Look at verse 16 at the end. It says, they called together a whole battalion. A battalion is around 600 men. Another Roman phrase for it would be a cohort, cohort rather. Uh, And so 
This is about 600 men brought in for this scourging of Jesus. This is not a small kind of backroom interrogation of evil men. This is a broad public spectacle. This is done most likely in a courtyard of Pilate's home uh, near the Praetorian Guard, that which would be those who are the defenders of Pilate, uh, the, uh, the highest of Roman soldiers at the time there. And it's done as a broad spectacle. 600 men coming to accomplish this. Verse 17, we see their mockery. They put a royal cloak on him. They clothe him in purple to mock him. They put a Roman crown rather than a crown of gold leaves. They mock what would be a crown of Caesar, gold leaves or well, gold made to look like branches and leaves that would go around his head. And so to mock Christ, instead, they make a crown of thorns and they beat it onto his head and that it would gouge into his skull and he would be bloody as they mock him. They mock him and entertain one another in their acts, as you look at verse 18 and 19. And they begin to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and his clothes and put on his clothes and led him out to be crucified. They're disgracing Christ. They're mocking Christ. They're seeking to entertain one another with their mockery. And they're also unifying together in their hatred. This is a massive abuse of power, but it's an abuse of power justified by a hatred for one another. And, and so if you consider this Barabbas who was to be freed would be a zealot, um, and, and some of the disciples were actually zealots. But a zealot in Rome would be one who, you know, today we have those that are a little, never mind, I'm not going to get political about today there would be Romans who are ready at any point to overthrow the government. Romans who are gathered, or rather Jews, who are gathered to overthrow Rome at any point. And, and they're not just angry about this. They're not just wearing hats and making bumper stickers and t-shirts. Uh, Roman soldiers would often be attacked or even killed by Jewish zealots. They would walk in a crowd of people and they would stab Roman soldiers in the crowd with knives. It was a, zealots were a form of guerrilla warfare for the time. They did not have the power to overthrow Rome, but zealots intended to make it so miserable in Jerusalem that the Romans would lose the will to fight and eventually take back Israel. Understandably then, the Romans hated Jewish zealots, which probably bled into a hatred of Jews in general. Soldiers in a foreign land, thereby conscription, uh, forced to serve there as they're in the military, serving against a people who are willing and ready by all of their assessment to kill them and take back their homeland. It meant fairly simple, fairly easy for them to find much hatred for the Jews. The Jews, likewise, uh, Pilate and the Romans in general, did not lead Rome with very soft politics. 
As Pilate came in, he did many things, and you could look in histories to offend the Jews, marching in with things the Jews would see as idolatry. And he would come into Rome. There was uh, at one point where Pilate did something very similar to what the zealots would do to the Romans. He had Roman soldiers dress as normal civilians and go into a crowd of people and then take out uh, essentially a, a bat and beat the Jewish people that were protesting or rioting or gathering. And so what we see here is men feeling justified because of their hatred for another group to mock through Christ that group. To mock as though these zealots could possibly think that they could have a king, a king of the Jews that would overthrow Rome. Their hatred is manifest in unity of hatred toward the Jews. They ignorantly beat and mock and disgrace Christ for the entertainment of one another and in a unified hatred for the Jews. They are doing exactly what is described that men do in Titus 3, verse 3. It's on the bottom of your handout. Titus 3, verse 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The description of people, because of their sin, they live in trying to satisfy their passions. And their passions often come in conflict with others' passions, and therefore they are malicious, they envy others, they hate them, and they are hated by them. This could speak much to our modern problems of both the abuse of authorities, police brutality and many things that often go on, and the justification for unrighteous murders of authorities because they abuse us. The world has no solutions for this. The world exists as the Romans and the Jews, as our current society polarized in both upholding authority and tearing down authority and coming to no conclusions other than a polarized hatred of one another. Justifying actions by the actions of others, justifying evil as the lesser of evils, Living in envy and malice, deceit, hatred, hating others and hating one another. And often doing so in the way these Romans do. Mocking others. Finding unity, not in Christ, not in salvation, but finding unity in opposition toward others. Mocking is a tricky thing for us. The Proverbs are clear. Proverbs 10, 23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. So you have all of these men gathered together and they are mocking Christ. They're using their power, their authority, what unites them. They are strong Roman soldiers and they're using it together to what end? To make a joke of Christ. 
What are they cheering each other on and lauding each other? They're declaring this is what makes them strong Romans. This is what makes them who they are. What? Beating, mocking, making a joke of, in their minds, just a man who's a Jew. Pilate permitting it because, in his mind, just an innocent man that might cost him his life. Mockery is difficult for us. It's much like anger. I believe there is a righteous mockery. But that righteousness is, is only in Christ. And the function of it only is manifest because of sin. There is no mockery within the Trinity. We often consider mockery, and I think particularly as men, but even more so as a society, mockery a, a purpose of unity. That mockery will bring us together. If we mock, we, 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 we find some sense of unity. And I, I think Titus would make it clear, and the Word of God would make it clear, uh, that is not where Christians find unity, in mockery. But... There is a mockery of sin clear throughout Scripture. You could look at uh, in, in Kings as Elijah mocks the gods of Baal and he says uh, what are hilarious things to them because as they're trying to get their God to listen to them to do what they want and they're cutting themselves and flailing themselves about and Elijah says maybe your God's on the toilet. Maybe he can't come to you right now. Maybe he's on vacation. Uh, maybe he's busy. He's mocking false gods. He, he's mocking their desire to get this God which doesn't exist. Paul, as he speaks of uh, those of the circumcision party that would call others that they must live like Jews. They see no distinction between the church and Israel. And they say, you must become Israel to be Christian. And Paul mocks them. He says, I wish that they would rather than just circumcising themselves, emasculate themselves, cut it fully off. That's some strong uh, masculine-driven mockery. It's not for the sake of unity. It's for the sake of clarity. For the sake of showing who is not God's. But I still struggle with that. I think um, this is not about just us, but personally, as, as someone who sinned much in Christ, as I, I read this and I, I see the acts of the Romans here, and I think uh, so many times I have been that man mocking someone else to unify with a different party. So many times before Christ, not before Christ as they are, but before Christ called me. And so maybe as the weaker brother in this, I, I wrestle with it. But I think we can be clear. Mockery is not a way we magnify the character of God in love for one another. Mockery is, is not a form of unity nor righteous character toward one another because mockery does not exist in the Trinity. Where it does exist is before the face of the Savior. He sees the mockery of these men. And what does he do? As they mock him, 
their mockery is, and their sin is only magnified by his innocence. As he is silent before his abusers and accusers, he is committed to the plan of God. As he has the joy set before him, he endures the pain, waiting for the plan of God. And as their sin is manifest, magnified before him, as he stands in innocence, their ignorance will soon be confounded. You will see in Mark 15, verse 39, one of the centurions, centurion, one of the soldiers of Rome, sees Christ's death and crucifixion. And as he watches this, verse 39 tells us, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. His ignorance is turned to clarity on who this man must be. We can sympathize with their weakness, with their foolishness, with their ignorance. We can also recognize Christ's knowledge and power in this. Isaiah 53, 11, which speaks much of Christ's coming and specifically of his death and passion or suffering. Isaiah 53, 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and bear their iniquities. We can take comfort that many believers rightly applied Titus 3 and had sympathy for the Romans and their sinful ignorance, and because they rested their hope in the mercy and power of Christ, declared the gospel to them. You could look at Philippians and Paul's thankfulness that there are even those in the house of Caesar while Paul was imprisoned, proclaiming to Roman soldiers and Roman officials the gospel, there were those who got saved. Why? Because as Paul functioned, as he commanded in Titus 3, to submit to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to do every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people, he did so knowing he himself was once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing his days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, Titus 3 verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Consider, friend, if Christ died to save even Roman centurions, if he died even to save those who would mock and spit on him, who would make a mockery of his rightful rule and reign over all things, if Christ died, that they might be saved. When your heart condemns you because how you have once lived, and you look to these soldiers and see, there is no way I should be saved. 
Let it be a reminder to you. Let it compel you that it is not because of your deeds, not because you figured things out, not because you once were a Roman soldier, but now you're a right religious person. That Roman soldiers remained as Roman soldiers, faithfully serving Christ without sin or in repentance of sin because Christ is faithful, not because they are. Because in the midst of seeing their sin, what was he doing? Preparing to die to pay for the penalty of maybe even some of those, those 600 men who watched and mocked and even more. See, the moral here, the reality here, not just the moral, the real truth here is not that all mankind is evil and struggles with the sin of mockery. It is that Christ the Savior saves even mockers. Christ is not hindered by their sin. His plan is not hindered because of their sin. Even that sin which was done directly against Him. It is rather in His grace the faithless sin of man was no obstacle for the sovereign work of God and salvation. And there is no fear in that being accomplished. There is great comfort in the reality of that accomplishment. There's comfort in the truth. And we see Mark here from verse 20 through 26. Almost rapid fire just lay things out that were done and facts about this. It's a list of facts. And... It's helpful for us because I think often, even in moments of just a few minutes ago, as I read these things, I I struggle for composure because I recognize my offense before Christ. But, But I'm not saved because it makes me emotional to consider it. I often question, is it even helpful? (laughs) Is it more distracting than helpful as we look at it? I often try to restrain that emotion because it's not that emotion that saves or should compel you. The emotion might be compelling and it must always be for me genuine if it is to be true, but it is not the instrument of salvation. It is not the height of your affection that saves you, nor the depth of your repentance that saves you. It's not the height of your faith, nor the depths of turning from sin that saves you. Those are both the given gifts of the reality and the fact that Christ saves. Exactly what Daniel described this morning. So when we see a section such as this that just gives lists of things that happened or the facts of what's going on, a description of reality, there are many times, and more so in Matthew or in John, with this declaration, how these incidents fulfilled specific prophecy. And there is also just the historical reality of what happens. So in similar nature to Mark, let me try to move through them quickly. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him and stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him out to be crucified... Mark simply states what they did. They had mocked him. They stripped him of the purple cloak. They took that which they put on him. And then they put his own clothes on him, led him out to be crucified. Just stating the facts. 
It's interesting that this would be one portion where many in the world would point out and they'd say, look, there's contradiction in Scripture. Because in Matthew, it says they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. But Mark says a purple robe. And so unbelievers, those who are scoffers and mockers of the Word of God, they would say, look, the Bible can't even get colors right. In one sense, uh, I I want to do a little bit of righteous mockery because I think it's such a silly argument toward contradiction. But, uh, But we also want to be sympathetic to those who see something that appears as contradiction to them uh, when actually it is quite simply clarified. Uh, You know this probably more so because you've seen movies of the pagan Rome and all their practices, but uh, Roman soldiers would wear scarves or cloaks uh, that were red, started out that way, and they would fade and often become purple. And so the dye in that cloth, just like much of your clothes, maybe men, you've owned a red shirt at one point, and then you wash it enough and it starts becoming purple and then you don't wear that shirt anymore, or maybe that's just a personal preference. But colors fade. Romans' cloaks that would start red would slowly fade to the color of purple. And so these Romans are taking their red cloaks, uh, many of which might already be purple. And the point of the text is they are taking this to mock him as though this is royal garb. They're putting royal garb on him which would be a varying shade of red to purple. And so it's it's actually not very complicated to see how Matthew could accurately describe and say a scarlet robe, and Mark could accurately describe and say mocking him with a purple or royal cloak. And so we should not be fearful uh, nor scared of the facts of the text. Verse 21 And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Mark states clearly what should give us both comfort and gives at the time credibility to what happened. This is not a made-up story. These were actual events which God came into history through the incarnation that Christ manifest and was marched from the Roman Praetorium to Golgotha or Calvary or the place of the skull to be crucified. So much so that Mark and Matthew and Luke, uh, and I think even John, but don't quote me on that, will, will declare this particular man, not just a passerby, but a passerby who was a man named Simon, who came from Caesarea. Uh, Cyrene, sorry, sorry, Simon. People get offended if you tell them they came from the wrong place. Simon of Cyrene. Particularly in Mark, as it's written to Romans, uh, there's good reason to, to trust what he's writing here. Why is he telling them this? Well, he tells them in historical fact, this passerby was a man. That man was Simon of Cyrene. He was coming in from the country. And this man, specifically in Mark, is stated at a point of relationship. Matthew just states Simon of Cyrene, as does Luke. And Mark declares Simon of Cyrene, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why does he state this? When you're describing someone to someone, why do you describe relationships? 
because of relationship. So at home often, we'll be talking, maybe we're talking about adults. And I'm saying, yeah, I was talking to Charles, and I was um, you know, discussing with him, or I was talking to Patrick, I'm discussing with him, I'm talking to Rick, and my kids will go, who's that? No offense to Patrick, Rick, or Charles. Uh, but I'll go, oh, that's Levi's dad. That's Bruce's dad. That's Gabby's dad. Right? Why? Because my, my, my kids don't care as much about Charles and Rick and Patrick as they do about their kids. And so Paul, or rather Mark, who's writing under Peter, Paul's not even saved yet at this point, uh, as, as Mark is writing, he writes particularly to comfort these people, and this is a known man. This isn't a made-up story. This is a real man. And that real man has two sons whom you would know. Rufus and Alexander. Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16, and I think it is fair to assume that's the same. It's possible Alexander is mentioned in Acts. There's a couple Alexanders mentioned. Uh, but the ancient world has the same burdens, if not more, as our world. If I tell someone, hey, I was talking to Danny. Yeah, good luck figuring that one out. We're going to have to communicate a lot of relationships, right? Daniel, Danny, it seems that we all came from a generation our parents weren't very creative. So thankfully, now we name our kids things like flowers and trees and concrete and try to be as original as we can. So the ancient world would have the same issues. To us, we can't come to all the conclusions exactly who are this Rufus and Alexander, but why does Mark write it? To make the point. This is not a made-up story. This is not a myth. There was a man who took the cross, and to comfort them and encourage them, you know this man's sons. And what do they know of those men's sons? Fair to assume, if it is Rufus and Alexander, these are men who are saved. Men who are Christians, from Cyrene, men who are known in Rome where Mark is writing. It gives comfort and credibility. In the same way we are often comforted by those relational communications, the readers of the time would be comforted as they read. And it gives credibility. He's not afraid to say names. He's not afraid to point out people that could be gone to. 1 Corinthians 15 is another good example of this. It says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's Paul doing in the book of Corinth? He's not hiding the facts of Scripture. He's not hyping up just on emotion or desire that you've got to believe me because I'm so passionate about this. He says, if you don't believe that Christ rose from the dead, you know what you can do, Corinthians? Not only did the apostles see him, but there were 500 people whom he appeared to. And many of them are still alive. Go talk to them. He's not fearful of the credibility of his message. He's not manipulating or trying to hide something. He is happy to state the facts and even at the time to declare, you can go discover this and figure this out for yourself. There's no ancient mystical hiding here. Clear, straight truth. Truth that is to be understood. Look at verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Just interesting and helpful. Uh, this place called Golgotha, he's speaking uh, of a term. Oh, I didn't write the note on my paper. I should have. Uh, I believe it's, this term is uh, transcribed into Greek from Aramaic. 
It would be the Aramaic term for the place. Don't quote me on that, but it's one, one language. You've got to do the study yourself here now because I didn't put this good in my notes. But it's Golgotha pronouncing an Aramaic word in Greek, I believe is what's happening there. And then he describes, because they're not going to know this word, what it is, right? So it's like when you go, hey, we're going to have a quesadilla. And people are like, a what? Uh, it's like a Mexican grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, okay. Right? It, it, the word has been transliterated, but a lot of our friends, I'm not going to point any out, y'all. They don't know about things like quesadillas. They grew up eating deer meat. But we can describe for them, no, this is, this is like a Mexican grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, that I got. And so Mark describes for the Roman readers. He says, Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then you could go further in language why we use the word Calvary uh, is because the early use of Latin and the Latin term Calva means skull or head, which turns into Calvary. That's just like fun homeschool mom information for all of you homeschool moms. I know you love Latin. Maybe you don't. Some angry faces when I said Latin. Anyway, 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. They are offering him a sedative. They are uh, giving to Christ a sedative. Or, well, not giving. Uh, the text says they, they gave, but it should be understood as it says they offered it to him and he rejected it. He did not take it. Um, and so again, just facts of what would go on. And it would be normal practice uh, by either. And, and historically, it's a little cloudy for historians, so I'm not going to take a stance um, but it would be either the Roman soldiers who offered this or uh, Jewish women there out of mercy and kindness offering to this to those who would be crucified because it would, as sedatives do, this wine mixed with myrrh would numb your senses to, to free you from some of the burden. And Christ refuses the ancient painkiller uh, because he is offering himself it is significant, though the physical pain is not the greatest of his pain and death, it, he was clear that he is intentionally doing this. He is not trying to avoid the cross. Verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Their sin in taking the dead man's clothing and God's sovereignty in fulfilling what he has planned. In Mark, it's not stated, but it's clear in the Gospel of John, uh, Psalm 22, which declares, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 25, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Again, the timing in which it came about is significant to the plan of God, that Christ's death would happen in line with uh, the Passover and the timing of all of that. And again, Mark is not fearful, nor were any of the ancient writers fearful to give the facts of what is going on. Lastly, verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him. As it read, the king of the Jews, it was his stated kind crime. It'd be posted as Romans would post the crimes of a criminal being crucified, uh, usually around his neck and then nailing it to his cross, what he is being crucified for. Remember, Roman crucifixion was uh, not concerned with the humanity of the death penalty. 
It was concerned with the example and the suffering of the death penalty. Roman crucifixion arguments might have been going on by some people who saw this as merciless, but the plan of it was not to show mercy. It was to declare force. And so they would declare the crimes of those who have committed crime against Rome, and they would put that above the irony of Christ's crime, quote-unquote, uh, is that it is very true. It is true of who he is. But he is the king of the Jews, and not the Jews only, but the king of all creation. The king who has not only ruled over all things, but as Colossians, where Daniel read for us this morning, declares he is the creator of all things. Not just him who reigns in perfect righteousness, but him who came and humbled himself in our place to live in perfect righteousness. And not just the one who holds authority over all creation, but as it is declared, he rules over all creation in mercy and in kindness. And now, in the fulfillment of the gospel and the reality of the gospel, he rules moving all things to the climax of creation, the new heavens and the new earth to bring about his perfect plan, to declare for all time that it is his glory and his reign that is over all things. And in perfect innocence, he fulfilled that plan in the face of ignorant mockers. Were we to be a Puritan church, we would continue with the arrogant mockers, but we're not. We're not Puritans. We're Menophites. And Minnifites don't come to church all day and sit for hours. We sit for, well, we do sit for hours, but not hours upon hours, just two. See how I'm prolonging service even just by talking about the prolonging of service? It's a difficult problem. By the grace of God, the text is open book, and we'll continue next week looking at now not just the mocking of the Romans in ignorance and the innocence of Christ, in bringing about in time and in history what he promised, not just the ideas of atonement and salvation, but the actions which he declared would come about to accomplish salvation and atonement for his people. And then we will look, and I would encourage you to look this week at the arrogant mocking of the Jews. See, they did not mock in ignorance. They mocked in arrogance. While the Romans united in their power over this man is so weak, the Jews united in their power over this man is so weak and we are so righteous. If he is the righteous king of the Jews, why doesn't he save himself? And they lacked the clarity in their arrogance, their arrogance to see that their very words were he to fulfill would not end him, but end their salvation. And he faithfully accomplishes with the joy set before him the sovereign plan of God in the midst of sinful men. So let me pray and then we will continue in fellowship together and be reminded together of the grace of God. I would encourage you uh, this week to read both the section we were in and the coming section uh, to consider the kindness of Christ to you 
to consider in your present trials, the present trials of our church in your own life, that our trials do not hinder the sovereign work of God. The sinfulness of man does not end his sovereign plans and purpose.